Bring It In with me, Gerard Hector, and I am joined by two very special guests, Professor of History at Emory College in Atlanta, Professor Carl Sudler. How are you, sir? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing well. And Professor of Economics at Baruch College here in New York City, Babak Somek, who authored an interesting piece, co-authored a piece that we're going to discuss today, uh, Inside the NBA Bubble, How Black Players Perform Better Without Fans. How are you, sir? I'm good. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Of course. So, Babak, I, I have to start here. When you did this study and you do what everybody who does any kind of work does, they put it out and they promote it on their various platforms, specifically Twitter. I'm so curious what the response was in your mentions when you put out, oh, black players actually perform better, better in the bubble without fans. It's because of race. <laughs> um, it was interesting. Like, I, you know, it's I guess I'm new. I'm relatively new to t- Twitter. I um I've been on Twitter for a while, but I barely engaged until this last year. So I'm not used to craziness. <laughs> uh, and usually, I, I before this, I, I only really use Twitter for sports just to see what's going on. And, you know, sports people say stuff, but it's like, you know, you don't take it as strongly. Um, but then, uh, so this was the first time where I had to deal with uproar. But, you know, my general sense is that the response has been generally very positive. Mm. But, but from, you know, the side, like the people who are liking it or retweeting it, um, it's been generally very, uh, and there's some positive comments. But then, yeah, as you would expect, uh, whenever we get into an issue of race, um, there's been some negative uh, pushback. Uh, from a variety of places uh for example like the the main one is people who just don't believe racism still exists today (laughs) which is like okay uh, (laughs) yeah and then um and then the other is uh actually from from what i could tell me it's hard to tell on twitter but some some users who seem to be uh black themselves who find it you know, like it is somehow, you know, they see it as an offense that mm. this is suggesting something. Mm-hmm. Um, well, yeah. yeah. I think that's interesting because actually what I said to Carl when we started was I was so curious to ask you that question because when you put out a study like that, to me, what I thought was the reaction because being on Twitter as I am, I'm like, oh, they're going to react to the headline. I'm going to bet 90% of the people on Twitter aren't going to even read the abstract, much less when you get into the actual data of how you put. No, this is not there. That's not the forum, right? That's the further you go down that rabbit hole, it's like less and less people, right? Just because the facilities to do that isn't there. And, you know, Carl, you said, you know, the memification of everything, right? This is Twitter and social media has created this space where everyone wants everything to be simple and easy, right? Oh, look, two sentences. Great. And it's like, you cannot explain a study like this in two sentences. So I'm curious, when you decided to work with your colleagues and and co-author this paper, what was the impetus behind it? Um, So my co-authors are um, both sort of, their focus is on labor economics. Um, So they're interested in issues that impact workers and negotiations and power of labor and things like that. Um, And particularly, they actually generally have been especially Paolo Falco, a bit focused on development. Uh, so countries that are developing rather than the wealthier countries. Um, but they, uh, but the, they're both Italian. They're both big soccer fans uh, and they're both from Naples, you know, which is Southern Italy. Yep. Um, 
And uh, I, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the Italian sort of uh, cultural makeup, but uh, it's kind of like the U.S. where the south of the country, there's a divide between the south and the north. Yep. Um, and the south. So, so but anyway, uh, I mean, I guess that's not super relevant, but but their main idea was they were interested in, they observed a lot of racist behavior by Italian um, fans, whether they read about it in the news or if they went to a game themselves. And so they, uh, I think they naturally were curious to see what would be the impact of the fact that, so in the Italian soccer league, there was also a period during the COVID where they didn't let fans into the stadiums. They didn't have any bubbles or anything like that, but but they had a period where fans weren't allowed and then they had a period where fans were. And so they were like, okay, what well, would be interesting to see if not having these angry fans who, who yell racist things at the players has an impact on the performance of African player, African born players, because uh, most of the uh, black population, as far as I understand in Italy are, are born or are from Africa rather than native to Italy. Um, mm-hmm. Although I'm sure there are black, uh, Italians as well, but so they wanted to know. They wanted to understand what the impact would be on those who come from, uh, who who are um, from African countries, relative to those who are from other countries. And so they went and they had a. They have their own metrics in in soccer that they used, and they did some sort of analysis, and they found a significant difference um, in that African-born players were performed significantly better without fans in the Italian soccer league then. So when I heard that for me, that was just like, I just thought it was an amazing idea. I thought it was brilliant. But the other thing was like, I thought of the NBA immediately, uh, partially because I'm a huge NBA nerd. Um, unfortunately, a, a big Knicks fan. <laughs> um, and, uh, and to me, like, you know, obviously we've been hearing, this was last summer. So this was not this past summer, but the summer before. And <clears throat> that was 2021. This is uh, slightly, uh, I guess, eight months or ten months removed from the bubble. Um, we had, you know, we had gone uh, over the last ten years. We'd seen um, what's going on with the Clippers, with uh, the owners of the Clippers. I forget, but Donald Sterling, uh, yep. mm-hmm. yeah, Donald Sterling, and then Robert Sarver mm-hmm. in Phoenix was recent, mm-hmm. so that was after. Uh, but we had all those instances in 2019 and obviously before and after. And I remember reading about uh, Bill Russell and his relationship with Boston many years ago. And um, so generally it was like, this seems like a natural thing for us to consider in the context of the NBA. Uh, and I thought in the NBA, the plans are right on top of the players as opposed to uh, soccer where there's a big separation. Um, I think NBA is a very uh, a game about balance, about uh, intelligence. It's about um, it's about being focused and in the moment uh, in a lot of ways. So I just I mean, there's a lot of reasons why I thought it'd be conducive to the NBA. And so I thought, oh, and we had the bubble. And so it just seemed like a natural uh, yeah. next step to look at. For sure. And Carl, as a professor of history who has particular interests in African-American history and race relations, I'm sure you also look at the connection and the correlation between race and sport, right? Um, mm-hmm. and, and sort of how that, how that uh, sort of converges. When you first saw the, the, the study that, that Bob tweeted out, what was your immediate thought? Yeah, so, you know, I, so I saw it when Henry posted it, mm-hmm. right? Shout out Henry. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, 
so so when he repo when he reposted the article, just like probably many folks read the highlight uh the headline and I was just like, interesting, right? Um I'm still wrapping up a sabbatical, so I had some time while I sat at the coffee shop, so I downloaded the link and, and sat with the article. Um and um and I was intrigued by by a bunch of the different parts, right? But you know, like Gerard said, I'm a you know, like I'm a African American historian. Historians are generally going to be more qualitative than quantitative, right? Um, but as somebody who, in particular, really writes about issues of policing, issues of incarceration, even as they tie to sports, um, I'm always going to be one that's like. There is, you know, there's a particular responsibility to us as the the data makers, right? Um, about the narratives that we tie to the numbers, right? And so I was I was intrigued by thinking of, you know, the numbers being able to tell us this story and what it means for us to assign that kind of value to the fans, um, right? Like in, in terms, you know, so so a lot of and I like I always hate talking about articles because I like you all need to go download this article and read it and cite it. And, you know, so I don't want to give too many spoilers. Right. Um, But one of the things that I wanted to be sure to talk about was, um, you know, a lot of it has to do with like racial pressure and racist behaviors. And, um, and so, you know, assigning the, the type of like, like framing, framing this as, as kind of racial pressure, right. From fans to me, like it, inadvertently maybe but it but it gives the kind of space to assume that you know as basketball players or as athletes in particular because even thinking about in relation to black soccer players right in Italy um it gives the space to assume that black athletes are seeking um some sort of white approval right and and Mm -hmm. and it and and it and it almost kind of like eliminates this form of like black agency in the sense of like do they care about what the white fans think at all in the first place, right? Um, mm-hmm. In relation to other racist potential pressures, right? So one, something that I, you know, really appreciated that you all did in the article was also talk about, you know, the owners, right? <laughs> talk about the coaches, right? Like, you know, it, it, Howard Bryant, right, sports writer, always talks about the power dynamic of sports mm-hmm. is that it is very top-heavy mm-hmm. white, right? So it's white owners, white execs, mm-hmm. white, white coaches, coaches. white fans, black players, right? Mm-hmm. And so thinking about that from the labor structure, you know, there are other kind of white racist pressures, right? That folks are, you know, the athletes in particular are responding to. Um, so to place it on the fan, I thought was interesting. Um, I thought it was, you know, an interesting decision, right? Um, because that also kind of, you know, for right or for wrong, kind of like makes the case that like the sheer presence of white people in the, in the facility mm-hmm. um, equates to racist behavior right mm-hmm. um and and i just thought i was like i was like man so you know henry was like you know we should all get together and talk about it and that was one of the big things that you know i was interested in kind of like you know like like why i don't want to say why give fans that power fans deserve some power uh but you know mm-hmm. as as athletes we know that there are so many variables that go into performance um aside from fan presence right and and, and i just thought like you know like like looking at fan presence um as sort of like this has a lot to do with how folks perform i thought was you know an interesting decision for a bunch of reasons i i love that you went there carl and bobic i want you to pick up on that so it's like a chicken and egg sort of thing here right we do this thing where 
on the one hand, we tell fans how important they are to the game, right? Because they buy money for the tickets, they spend it on concessions, they buy league pass, da, 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 all the different things. But how? But they are not actually a part of the thing on the floor, right? Like you are not actually playing, right? And it, what makes me think of that is, of course, the most famous incident we had in the league, which was the Malice in the Palace, right? Fans coming out of their seats onto the field of play. It's like, no, 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 no. You're not part of this in that way, right? So was there any concern, Bobby, when you put this out that are we assigning the fans too much power per se? Um, I think we we want to be as careful as we can in the context of this type of very important uh, and politically charged sort of issue to talk about. Um, so I think it, it's interesting that you asked that because I'm not sure if we're putting it all on the fans. What we're saying is that here we have an experiment where there's no fans. I mean, obviously there's still white owners and there's still white executives and there's still white coaches, white referees. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And there's still, you know, and I think I would take it further beyond the basketball court. I think the effect is also a racist environment that these people are, I mean, the world we live in. Like, uh, so yes, the fans not being there is is the factor that maybe like triggers something. And it maybe is the psychological trigger to see white fans yelling and screaming, even if they're not necessarily racist things that they're saying, but just this this image. Uh, and I'm not necessarily saying they are the ones causing it, but they might be the ones who are bringing it out um, and impacting it. Um, and I think the quote by LeBron is, to me, like the most powerful thing because he said it way before we even considered this issue. And he, and you can tell by what he's saying that it's, it's, he's recognizing it. It's not even like he's dismissing it and it's not, it's not even registering. He's not saying, Oh, I didn't even hear that. He's saying, Oh, I heard it. I registered it. And then I put it aside and tried to go on with the game. So I think that's what, I think maybe that's what we're saying is that, but, but I think one of the things you're saying, Carl, and, Gerard, I think both of you are suggesting this, but and I, I think we, we all accept that is that we can't strongly say that this is for sure due to racism, of course, because there's a lot of other factors that are going into play. Um, all we can say is that when we look at the data from the playoffs to previous year to the playoffs of the bubble and we compared black and white performances, black players played significantly better in the bubble. And we tried to answer like possible explanations for why that might happen. And we, we do lots of other controls. We try to like figure out other factors um, and we can't find any other answer. Uh, And this is the most reasonable answer that keeps coming out. Um, the other thing I want to say is that some of the pushback we got on Twitter was that, you know, that the, some, some of the readers thought we were suggesting that black players can't deal with pressure as well as white players. And that's not at all what we're saying. In fact, we show lots of ways where that's not what's happening, particularly by the fact that the result is stronger amongst the top performing players. The, the top players in the NBA seem to be impacted by the bubble more than the, the lower. And there's plenty of studies that show that top players in basketball can deal with pressure better than uh, the bottom 
you know, the, so the, the stars of the NBA can deal pressure. I mean, that's what makes them stars. Yep. And so if this effect is stronger amongst them, it suggests that it's not about the pressure. It's, it's about something else. And we think the best explanation is this racist, uh, latent racist effect. Yeah. Like to that point. The, oh, go ahead, Carl. No, I was going to say to that point, right, something that I, you know, like I always, you know, for right or for wrong, right, we always think about Boston. Um, (laughs) And, and, you know, you know, I I went to a game at TD Guardian recently, last season, actually, Um, you know, living down here in Atlanta, uh, I go to Hawks games all the time. And and it's a drastically different environment. Um, (laughs) At the at the same time, you know, what jumps out is Boston has championships, plural right? Atlanta does not. And, and so like there, so, so, so from a sheer like basketball perspective of the long term, right? Like, like I thought about the impact of the fan, right? Cause the fan experience in Atlanta is a different kind of fan experience than the fan experience in Boston. Right. Um, but yet the game that's being played on the court, you know, if we're looking at championships as the measure, right. is still, that Boston is producing at a higher basketball level, right? Um, you know, from a sheer, like, this is thinking, like, as championships as sort of the the goal there. And so, like, even, like, you know, with something like that, I was like, man, like, like how do we help make sense of this, right? Um, like, if, if we were to use these kind of metrics, if we were to use these kind of variables, right? Like, how do we make sense with, you know, what has been known as a notoriously unjust and not very fun place to play to your point where even athletes today can continue to talk about Boston in this particular light. Um, But yeah, they were also just, you know, in the championship last year. Right. (laughs) Like, and so Mm -hmm. it's not like, you know, like it's a, it's not like it seems to affect uh, their ability to put forth competitive teams year in and year out, you know, like, and so I I thought that would like, like, how do we then make sense of like that um, in relation to, these numbers right absolutely yeah that's a great question i think um basically what we're trying to look at specifically we're trying to isolate the impact of the the fans specifically and so when we do that we remove we we try as best we can uh obviously this is an imperfect science Uh, there is no perfect science to be honest (laughs) there is no such thing i mean every every science has some randomness to their studies um, we try to control, so, so in order to just isolate the effect of fans or the fact that the fans were in the stadium versus not, we try to control for everything else, including, um, team specific factors like Atlanta versus Boston, uh, uh, games, we even actually control for game specific factors. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, we, we try to make sure the same team, uh, you know, in the same game and we're, we're making sure that we're we're trying to control for factors like the, how many fans are in the stadium. So we we control for the attendance. We control for location, like the actual stadium itself, whether it's Atlanta or whether it's Boston. So, so it may be that if we just looked at the raw data and we didn't control for anything, but that the Boston generally has better numbers, but that could also be because Boston has more money. It could be that Boston has better management. It has had better ownership. Obviously we know as a Knicks fan, the value. (laughs) Um, And so, so it's true that in in the raw sense, without any consideration, uh, like not taking those factors into account, Boston might perform better than Atlanta overall, but 
but that could that that seems to be about other factors. And then, but once we remove the impact of these other factors and we just focus on which when fans were in and versus not, then we we get the result that we want. I I love what you what you guys both said there. And when I'm thinking about this, you know, one of the challenges I think that fans often have with data is tied to sort of a larger fear that like this country has about math and numbers, right? <laughs> and like running away, it's like a very scary thing. Um, but there are ways in which, well, the numbers say what they say, right? Like they, and when you isolate and control for variables, this is now nah, you can draw whatever conclusion you want, but when you add in the human element to this, and the reason why I think about this is because I think we saw this and not just in the bubble, but the following season when fans were limited in arenas, the shooting percentages were extremely, were much higher. And once fans started coming in, the shooting numbers started going back down again, right? And so it's like, hmm, what's the one thing that changed between then and now? Well, the one obvious thing is, well, there were no fans before, now there are fans now. Do we want to make that the only thing? No, you got to look at some other things. You mentioned Atlanta, Boston. Those are two completely different cities, right? Like Boston is a very white city in that way. And its history in terms of basketball is based around the greatest white player ever. Well, for now, until like Luca and Nicole, Nicole, you take, take that, take that mantle from him, which they may already have it of Larry bird. Right. And the generational, right. You probably have more generational fans in Boston than you might have in Atlanta and Atlanta's greatest figure. Carl is probably Dominique Wilkins. Right. So, and Atlanta's a black city. So I think, do you have the same generational type of fan base that you have in Boston? I don't think so. And do those attitudes about Boston generationally, right, which include race and class and everything else, does that transition into how fans act at games versus how your average Atlanta Hawks fan acts at a game? Yeah. And, and I mean, to that point, too, right, like I think I think it speaks to kind of the experience in the bubble. Right. So when we're thinking about visiting players coming to Atlanta versus visiting players going to Boston, the distraction off the court. Um, like, you know, I mean, even when we think about the bubble, right? Lemon, no pepper, lemon, no lemon, lemon, pepper wigs in, uh, <laughs> in Boston. Lemon, lemon pepper Lou let us know that, you know, coming to Atlanta, even in the middle of a pandemic while playing in a bubble, there are distractions at hand, right? People go to Boston for distractions, especially in the winter, right? Like, like there are all types of like, you know, mm -hmm. like I think about mm -hmm. like, you know, people go to Miami, like after living in Minnesota for mm -hmm. a winter sport. And all of a sudden I'm on South Beach in, in January, right? Yeah. Like these things also like in a weird way affect our game, right? Or affect the player's game, right? On and off the court, um, you know? And, and so, you know, so, so when we think about the bubble, right? They were just, you know, it, we thought about it like a, a multi-month AAU tournament, right? Where you're yeah. living with your players, you're living with your teammates, you're living with, mm -hmm. you know, like you're you're living distraction-free, not only from like the, you know, players not hanging out, walking around Disney camp, but also, you know, they don't got the pressures of going home, right? Like they don't have the, like, mm -hmm. like there are like so many like variables in the sense of like, you know, you know, my kids ain't acting up, right? Like my, you know, my <laughs> right. wife is, you know, like, like there are just so many yeah. kind of things at play um, yeah. that, that, you know, that, that the bubble kind of controlled for in that sense. Right. Um, but not, but arguably the, the most important one being like, you know, it was in Orlando and they just lived amongst each other with very tight restrictions where 
uh, you know, you just, the camaraderie amongst you and your teammates is different, right? You know, you mm-hmm. see them mm-hmm. on and off the court during practice, after practice, you see, you know, like all of that. Like, and so I, I really do think about like, uh, you know, there, there were just so many, you know, unique, um, you know, that, that I think even, again, I, I still have to keep thinking about the soccer. I, I'm not a yeah. huge soccer fan, but, but I do think about like a lot of black soccer experiences, mm-hmm. especially, you know, during the pandemic right here in the United States. I mean, MLS players formed black players for change, right. As an organization mm-hmm. where every black soccer player, man and woman joined, um, you know, like, and, and we saw kind of conversations across the pond, if you will, with black soccer players in Europe, um, and, you know, having them speak out about different racist experiences that they face over there um, what was a very, like, powerful kind of moment, um, you know, and, and so, so I think about those things kind of, you know, in that, you know, what, what the, you know, amidst this kind of global chaos, the bubble kind of giving folks this, like, very controlled space where nothing you do but play basketball, um, you know, like, gave us some very epic basketball performances, right? I still think about that Jamal Murray and oh, Donovan, God, Mitchell Donovan Mitchell game, right? Yeah. Like, you know, um, and so, so yeah, so, so I do think, you know, again, it's just, you know, it, it was interesting stuff, right? Like that I've had a fun time reading, but then just also couldn't help but think about like, you know, what else, right? What else was there? Like, not because I don't believe the fans are important, but I just think there are so many, yeah, like so many, even basketball contributing factors. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, um, I think that's a really good point. I mean, at the end of the day, there, unless we have, I mean, unless we have, it, it is true that there are factors that are happening in terms of like being in the bubble. Uh, that are beyond just the fans. I guess we had two pushbacks to that. Other than we accept that. I mean, we we accept that we can't say with 100% that this is causing this. But two pushbacks would be generally like uh, the question is why would those differences impact black players differently from white players? Mm-hmm which I generally don't see any good reasons. And we went and try and see like stuff like, for example, uh, you know, uh, I, th- I talked to Tom Havistro. He, he kind of coined this term, the Tinderization effect, you know, mm-hmm. of, uh, of the NBA that he actually wrote about, I think in 2019, about how um, it could be that uh, pl- so players, NBA players, when they go to certain cities, there's more distractions for them than otherwise. Uh, Atlanta being one of them. <laughs> uh, I actually just heard Jalen Rose talking about this uh, the other day to explain why Atlanta beat, um, anyway, Milwaukee. Yeah, yeah, yeah Milwaukee, yeah. that's right. Yeah, um, schedule loss, it happens, <laughs> yeah, but, um, but what we did was try to see if there was this differential of this home court effect. Uh, or at least distraction effect uh, on black versus white players. Even though, to be honest, like we were uncomfortable even doing that analysis. We're like, but you know, we got so much pushback by people that we're like, okay, we should double check this. And we did this by looking at 2019 uh, home versus away games, and we wanted to see if there was any differential in terms of black versus white performance. And we couldn't, we didn't find anything. So, um, and then we tried to control for other factors in terms of like the, the cities and stuff like that um and still we 
we still have the effect. So, so I think that's one pushback. And the other pushback is um, there was no bubble in the Italian soccer league. It was just there was no fans. That was really the only other than, you know, COVID going on and stuff. So the fact that we, we saw it in a completely different sport, in a completely different uh, country with its own history, um, uh, we thought was a very strong um, support in terms of what we see. Absolutely. Is there um, anything that through the course of as you were doing your, your data and compiling and, and figuring out things that was interesting, but it didn't make the the piece because there wasn't enough to support it and you couldn't figure out, I pop, you know, I can't figure out why this is, so it's not worth putting it in, but something that sort of ended up on the cutting room floor, so to speak. Um, not really. Uh, I think we actually were generally, uh, we, we did include uh, some things that, you know, we say that aren't, we are not super confident about. Like, for example, the southern cities mm-hmm. and the northeast cities having stronger effects. Mm-hmm. That we're not 100% confident in that result. And so we don't emphasize it. We just kind of say it. Um, but as far as I remember, there wasn't any sort of ground shaking result that we would have, there were some controls that we left out. Mm-hmm. Um, there were some things that we went into just to disprove that as an explanation. Um, like the, I, I, I'm not sure. I don't think we included the Tinderization stuff in the mm-hmm. final paper, uh, and the discussion around it. Uh, so no, and, and and I think yeah. So as far as uh, additional work we have, and now we expect that uh, we're still in the process of getting this published at a, a referee journal. Um, so we're sending it off to, uh, we're starting to send, send it off to academic journals. We're actually presenting it tomorrow at New York University uh, at awesome. a seminar there uh, in their economics department. Um, and so we're going to start getting feedback from the academic world. Uh, and that's going to be really constructive for us to figure out uh, what were the statistical methods that maybe we could do better, what are additional things that we can look into. Um, so that's going to be interesting. Yeah, for sure. Have you? One, one yet, of the things you anticipate. Oh, oh sorry, Carl. Go ahead. No, I was going to say one of the things that jumped out was um, something that, like, and 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 I think it probably jumped out in terms of in you know, just shock factor maybe, but, but where you said uh, that, uh, or where you all wrote that only 27% of fans identified as black, like, like that number jumped off the page to me um, for a variety of reasons um, on, on both sides. Right. If I'm ill, right. Like, because on the one hand, you're just like in a country that is 12% black, mm-hmm. it's, it's, you know, twice plus removed or, you know, or twice, you know, it's double plus. Right. Um, you know, but but then also thinking like, you know, to the point about like in a sport that is, you know, almost three quarters black, right? Mm-hmm. This number is, is actually really, really small, right? And so just kind of, and so for me, like, you know, even thinking about a measurable, like, you know, how do you measure a fan base? Like, how do you measure, like, like I, I wasn't sure if this number represented like fans in the arena, if it's, you know, fans based on tickets, if it's like, like, how do you mm-hmm. get like to the point where you're just like, 27 percent of like mm-hmm. uh, like from a, just a sheer like production of a number stamp question yeah that's a, uh, that's a great question first of all i'd like to say that that number didn't go into our analysis at all 
that number was just uh, something we used to illustrate this sort of differential between fans and the players in the NBA. Um, so it's not actually our, our analysis doesn't depend on the, the makeup of the fans because because as you're suggesting, and it's absolutely true, it's that number is very imperfect. Um, it's uh, it's based on one. I think it was a Pew Research. I forget which one it was, but there were different numbers if you looked at different reports because the NBA doesn't actually release that data. Or, or I, don't, I don't know if they keep track of it, but there's no... The, the, when we try to find data on, for example, racist incidents, mm-hmm. so my, my colleagues, uh, when they wanted to do the study on the Italian Soccer League, they had an official data set from the the Italian soccer league that was tracking these things. And so they could then go and be like, all right, let's make sure this sort of lines up. But when we wanted to do the same thing, there was no, there's no official NBA record of racist incidents in NBA stadiums. Um, There is no actual NBA record of the race of NBA players. Uh, So even for the race data, which we did use in our analysis, we had to use another source that had to go through and try to recognize race, you know, without, having the official answer from the from the player themselves it's not available um and uh there's some nielsen rating on who's watching the nba games on tv um but there's zero data on who's actually at the arenas which we assume i mean our general sense is probably the arenas are going to be whiter um than who's on tv uh but there's no way of confirming that or not yeah. A- anecdotally, I will say, um, as someone that covers a league and goes to multiple arenas, yes, the arenas tend to be 80% white, I'd say, right? Uh, that'd be a little bit different if you go to Atlanta, it'd be a little bit less, but overall, that's about what, what it is in, in most NBA arenas. I'm curious, Bobak, um, have you and do you expect to hear from the NBA about this study? <laughs> no, we haven't heard anything from the NBA. Um you know, we tried to, we, we included the NBA players, mm-hmm. the the head of the Players Association, the current and the former, mm-hmm. uh, Michelle Roberts. Yep. Um, we tried to, uh, you know, tweet at different people within the NBA, outside of the NBA, uh, and we just, we generally didn't get anything. We didn't get any response. Uh, so we're not sure, like, I, I think... I guess, you know, there could be reasons why um, yeah. I might not want to touch <laughs> I, I, I have a feeling they're probably like, we don't want to touch this thing because it might be really ugly. Um, you, you, you mentioned soccer. So the Italian, the top soccer league in, in Italy is Serie A, which, you know, uh, Mario Balotelli, who is an African descent player, but who was born in Italy, is someone who faced a lot of racist uh, taunts and things said at him um, on the field to play in Italy. So I think it's just important for people to have context there. I think in European football, they seem to have a much clearer, or at least at least in terms of penalties for the for the clubs, as to what happens when these things occur. Um, and and it's sort of a very you know a very stamped out and like you know clear like okay you're being fined this this person's being kicked out it's a very and as you mentioned they have a database where it keeps track of all this stuff right um in the nba they don't and i suspect it's because it happens quite a bit um and they're like oh this would look really bad if people knew what was really going on in inside of stadiums i want to transition uh a little bit um into you know I, I again talking about this study it's and it's not even 
you know, of the three people on this podcast, I am the least intelligent. But it is not something that is difficult to understand and ascertain, right? But there is a thing in society now with misinformation and people being able to actually look at something objectively and say, huh, this is interesting and, and, and dig into it. And I'm, I say that as it relates to what went on over the past two weeks in Brooklyn with Kyrie Irving and the different things that, that he's believing in as basketball fans and academics, as both of you are, what are the challenges you see in your everyday work as it relates to misinformation out there? That's a heavy question, Ron. I mean, I'm <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I think it's difficult, right? You know, a little bit, you know, in the pre-show conversation, we talked about, um, you know, th this has kind of been a, in a, a long time in the making, right? Um, there's a guy, a historian named Jordan Taylor, uh, shout out to Indiana PhD program <laughs> that was producing some of the best brightest minds around <laughs> uh, a, a basketball university. Um, but um, he, he, he actually writes about like misinformation. It's like the title of the book, I can't... It, Sorry, Jordan, if I'm jacking this up, it's like misinformation nation, but it actually looked at sort of like how misinformation in early America actually gets permeated right over time. Um, and as one might imagine, it was very easy um, to do it. it like, but then, you know, you know, if we just follow kind of the trajectory of these things, like, you know, there was a moment where, you know, I, I, I told my students recently, you know, back in the olden days where we bought like newspapers and, uh, you know, magazines <laughs> at like grocery stores or what have you, right? Like, like we would see like, you know, tabloids on the show and, you know, they'd be like Martian, you know, <laughs> touchdown <laughs> yeah. in New York City, right? Uh, and we would look at that and be like, nah, whatever. These people are crazy, right? Except now we see it on Twitter and we're just like, yo, a Martian touchdown in New York City, <laughs> right? And and so I am. I was always so intrigued by how that happened, um, because you know, again, as somebody who works with college students day in and day out, um, and as somebody who was a college student not that many, you know, years ago, um, although it's getting further and further, <laughs> um, you know, I, I do think there's an element of the pressures to learn things fast, right? Um, you know, that like tell me what I need to know about these things. Right. And then you take it for granted. And, you know, and so, you know, historians will call it, you know, or just about any academic will call it fact checking. Right. Like go into the sources, see what, how people are producing said knowledge. Um, and we don't you know, we don't fact check. Right. And, you know, you can make the you know, we talked about it earlier, but like you can make the case that this starts, you know, early on in our education moments we're like re hopping online and or before you know internet was super popular and you know you just want the cliff note version of any study right you want the cliff note version of the book uh and and, and i think that's why you know as those who produce it right those the, the that produce the knowledge are you know somewhat responsible for how these things can kind of be shaped right and put out um you know i'll you know so so i wrote you know my first book in, that came out in 2019, right? The title of it is Presumed Criminal, you know, Black Youth and the Justice System in Post-War New York. Uh, and, um, you know, I remember having a fight with my press because the, you know, the title that they wanted was Presumed A Criminal, right? Um, mm -hmm. And like, as a, even as a first book author, I had to like push back against it because 
while they didn't necessarily see that significant of a difference in what message or what argument is kind of being presented into in a title, you know, I had to make the case that it was, right? That this article changes what the word criminal is actually doing. And if, you know, if you look at the book cover, um, there's a young black boy peering out, there's some kids behind him playing ball and just a ton of cops in the back, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, and so my point was that, like, you're not going to attach my name to a book cover where most people are going to think they got the argument of the book mm -hmm. by just seeing the book cover, mm -hmm. right? Talking mm -hmm. about judging a book by its cover, um, where they're like, oh, Carl Sutler's arguing that young black kids are presumed cr to be criminals, <laughs> like, you know, and it's like, and it's like, that's actually not the point, right? Um, you know, but the presumption of criminality is, is much more perverse, right? Like, and so, you know, and, and something as small as the title change going from presumed a criminal to presumed criminal, which from a, a selling perspective, they didn't think twice about, right? And putting it out, they wouldn't think twice about, but it took for me to kind of like push back against it, right? Um, because for me, it was so important that the curbside message that the book was selling was not one where we were looking at an individual element of criminality, but more so kind of this like group, you know, idea, right? This group think. Um, but, you know, but, but that happens so often, right? And so I do think there's a responsibility for us as knowledge producers um, to make sure that in the event that your work gets memefied or cliff noted, um, that it can't be done so in a manner that is misleading, um, now it's, you know, it's impossible, like, you know, to be perfect in that sense, but, but, you know, I do think there's a responsibility. Uh, and then as teachers, I think it's, you know, it's up to us to kind of constantly push our students to, you know, want to fact check, right. To want to know who these people are producing this work, right. To not take, you know, data at face value, to not, you know, see a, a, a cute meme online that's attached to a quote that the person never actually said and, <laughs> and you know, then cited in your paper. Right. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. You know, and, and so I think there are a lot of challenges, but I, but I, I don't think it's as new as what people actually think it is. Right. Mm -hmm. I, I think it has a very long history. I think it's very deliberate. I think there are like power structures at play, um, you know, and yeah, for sure. And Bobak for you, because Carl is in humanities, right? In history, you deal with economics, like numbers, right? It's like, I mean, now you could argue, well, see if you can make up numbers, right? How do you deal with that same scenario? I mean, it's interesting because obviously I think what Carl is talking about is is much more personal and, and you know, it impacts us socially. But I actually think, uh, so I, I feel like it's really an important aspects of misunderstanding and, and having our own views, but also in economics. I mean, if you think about everyone and everyone, you know, has an opinion about how the economy works, you know, and everyone, you know, has an opinion about, you know, this president is a terrible economist or this policy is terrible. That's good. Or, you know, and so, so economics is one of the fields where, a lot of my students come in and they already think they understand, you know, everything. And so a lot of the effort is spent on trying to help them understand, like, you know, some of these assumptions are just what they are. Those are assumptions and you need to go to actual data and understand, like, for example, almost everyone comes into our course thinking that the way humans respond to incentives is if you give them more money, they're going to work harder. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, this is the standard assumption about how people work. 
But in practice, economics as a field has shown that that's not like necessarily always true. That's true in certain instances. It's not true. And also, if we think about our own lives, most of us aren't just driven by money. Most of us are impacted by other factors we care about, happiness, our families, stuff like that. So it's just weird, this thing that there's this religion of this assumption about how the world works. Um, and so we have to kind of push off. But, but I also agree with a lot with what Carl was saying in that it's up to us, because I think economics as a field did a lot to not teach our students these extended models. So if you were an economics student, and I think to this day, if you're an economics student in a lot of undergraduate programs, you're going to be taught in your first couple of courses models that are about like what it would look like if the economy was perfect you know it's like if everyone had perfect information and everyone was acting perfectly and there was no like imperfections there was no limitations there was no frictions in the economy how would it work and that's what they're taught and then in that world yeah if you set a minimum wage that might cause people to lose jobs but in a world where there are uncertain information, sometimes if you set a minimum wage, it actually causes more jobs to be created. But they don't see that. And so they go out into the real world and they are in their head, they think higher minimum wage means fewer jobs. And so we saw in the financial crisis the consequences of badly teaching people economics. There are a lot of the basis for what caused the financial crisis in 2007, 2008 was their leaders in, in the finance world, in the political world, in society that, that took some economics course in their undergrad, were taught these Mickey Mouse fake models that are only useful in the context of teaching the introductory concepts before you go on to show all the other things that happen when we move away from those basic assumptions. And, but they don't know that. And so it causes this massive problem for society. And thankfully, economics has started to change you know there's this movement and i saw it when i was in bristol before i moved back to the u.s i was teaching in the united kingdom and we were starting to teach this non-standard economics textbook that was starting to teach the the models that are very standard in economics like we as economists when we do our research we are looking at all these other assumptions we're looking at when information is not perfect when there's monopolies we look at you know when there's when when Walmart exists and you only have one place that you can go find a job, like so, these things are all studied by economists in in a variety of ways, and and it's starting to be the the curriculum is starting to change so that we actually teach these ideas to the students rather than teach them that every, if everything's perfect, this is how it'll work, and then bye, have fun. Yeah. In the <laughs> well, yeah, and I think what what you guys are both talking about, right, is this sort of the work that historians, economists, right? People who produce these works of academic scholarship, like this is lifelong pursuits for people of studying and refining. Like you ain't learning this stuff on YouTube in 30 minutes. Like that's not, that's not a thing, right? Like that's not giving you what you need to know. And if you're going to go out there and espouse anything that's important, you better know what you're talking about, right? And, you know, again, if your lifelong has not been dedicated to studying and learning and changing your, it, it, it's a dangerous thing. Um, as we wrap, I wanted to talk about some on-the-floor stuff. Uh, we got Hoops fans here, a Hawks fan, and a Knicks fan. So, Carl, I, I know you're happy right now. Hawks playing pretty well. DeJounte Murray and Trey Young seem like a good thing. How are you feeling about basketball in Atlanta? So, full of clothes, right? I'm a Lakers fan. Oh, first. Lord, oh. you're one of these. Oh, and boy. So, 
no, so no, no. How's that going? I, I grew, Q and A. How's that going? I grew up. I grew up as a Lakers fan. All right. You know. Oh, you know. Shout out to the military who had a station yeah, in Hawaii yeah, for yeah. seven years. All right. Um, but um, but I do go to Hawks games almost daily, right? Or at least regularly. Mm-hmm. I've I've only missed the game one game this season, which was the home game that they just beat the Bucks in earlier this week. <laughs> but uh, um, but um, so I'll talk about both teams really quickly. The Lakers, I still am perhaps naively holding on to a glimmer of hope. Listen. Listen. I'm putting my trust in Darvin Ham and the franchise to kind of, you know, I'm liking what I'm seeing from Westbrook off the bench. You know, his production (laughs) numbers have gone up just a little bit. Uh, You know, I I still think, you know, and I think they're moves away, right, from, you know, being competitive right like or at least you know competing at the level that laker fans are used to them competing yeah now as somebody who watches the hawks every game and you know i get to you know be in the arena for a bunch of these um it's exciting it's an exciting time down here right like i remember trey young's rookie year was the year i moved down to atlanta you know i was going to a bunch of games and i was just like there's something going uh, on here, right? Uh, yeah. And then, you know, you followed it up with sort of that Eastern Conference final run mm-hmm, and some folks mm-hmm. thought it was a fluke. And and then last year they, you know, were somewhat underperformed. But I, but I think picking up Murray mm-hmm. was, you know, such a big addition um, yeah. because of what he's able to do on both sides of the ball, what he's able to help Trey do, right, and help mm-hmm. Trey be um, front court wise you know, I mean, they're as solid as, as you can, mm-hmm. you know, really get like you know like their starting five is a is a legit starting five Very and good. then you know once bogey gets back mm-hmm. um coming off the bench but but even what they're able to get out of griffin right yep. the young players griffin mm-hmm. johnson like uh what they're able to get out of the holiday brothers right now mm-hmm. uh you know and, and coach nate has them you know playing some really good ball um uh, and i will say i mean that home court matters <laughs> like you know like <laughs> it's, it's 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 actually really interesting to see um because you know they had their first road trip yep. where they you know dropped most of the games um you know on their record so far um they've only lost one game here uh so far this season and it's been um you know it's they're an interesting team. I'm, I'll, you know, I think if they stay healthy, well, you know, like most teams, right? They can't yeah. lose any, you know, right. important key players. Yep. Um, you know that that they're going to be somebody who will hover around the top of the East uh, all season long. I like that, Baba. You know, in New York, the Knicks. Uh, you know, look, it, it's so funny. I, I was looking at some of their numbers the other day, and they've played eleven games. They're like a simulation. They're fifteenth in offense, fifteenth in defense, fifteenth in net rate. It's like they're just they're middle of the pack in every single stat and they're just about 500 it's early so i don't want to lose my mind and be like you know we got we'll see what they're at 20 games in but how are you feeling as a knicks fan so i uh you know i'm one of those knicks fans that buys the story at the beginning of the season <laughs> you know, i was into prison god and then bing bong <laughs> bing um, <laughs> And uh, but this year is interesting because it's it's the first year in a while where it feels like we're just sort of lunch pail working, you know, mm-hmm. like we're just we're not trying to like look for this like oh we're gonna all of a sudden turn into this uh, right. championship team. Right. Uh, we're like oh we're we're improving from that last year. We have young guys we're developing, and Jalen Brunson is mm-hmm. he's, uh, he's it's almost like if you could go to a lab and create a uh, a point guard for New York. I feel like I know that people like people talk about uh, you know the New York point guards who grew up in in New York City who can dribble like 
you know, an amazing like Kyrie Irving right. style st- skills. But um, I think what New York Knicks fans love is more like the Ron Harper uh, and the you know '90s Knicks style. Uh, you know, um, I'm forgetting his name. The 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 point guard we had who was also a Heisman Trophy winner. Charlie, Charlie Ward. Ward. Charlie Ward. Right. Yeah, you have Derek Harper. So, like, you have Craig Anthony. Those are those are your guys. Exactly. And and Jalen Brunson is kind of that type of smart, very intelligent, tough, um, who who doesn't look for his own it's not an ego about him, it's about the team. And I think that's just exactly what we need. So so that's really positive and, and I'm I'm kind of happy we didn't sell out uh this past summer. I I, I mean I know Donovan Mitchell is just I mean Cleveland I, is they are amazing. alive. Cleveland is so good right now. So yes, you'd probably be better if you had Donovan Mitchell, but I will say this. Your point about <laughs> your point about Jalen's correct though. He's an adult in the room. And look, for as great as Kyrie is, do you want that headache on your team right now? I bet you don't. I bet you're much happier with Jalen Brunson, right? Oh my God. <laughs> I mean, if you look back, I, I was I was so I was one of those again, uh, I believe that KD was going to come and you know I, I, I kind of you know we saw what Kyrie was doing in Boston and even before that in mm-hmm. Cleveland we got a sense that he might be a distraction so I was I was like okay well, if we get KD to have Kyrie I was really on board and when they decided on the Nets I was very disappointed uh, but now I mean a couple Not years so later you're like, oh my goodness. <laughs> like, holy cow we're so lucky <laughs> you're like we dodged a major bullet there yeah. for sure uh, guys, thank you so much for joining us today. Really enjoyed this conversation. Very enlightening for our listeners. Uh, tell the people where they can find you, Carl. Yeah, so you can find me on Twitter at prof underscore Suddler, S-U-D-D-L-E-R, because that's as creative as I get. I'm not sure how much longer I'll be on Twitter, given you know <laughs> the context of the world. I'll, I also have a public IG game where I... Um, C underscore Suddler because that's as creative as it gets with the names. Um, and uh, but but if you're ever in Atlanta, ever want to come around campus, you know, shoot me a message. We love to you know have folks around Emory. Love it, Bob. How can the people find you? Also, I'm uh, you know, my, I guess my main public profile is my very basic Twitter. Uh, so at uh, Bob um on Twitter. Uh, but also, I encourage people to go. Please read the paper. Mm-hmm. Uh, True Hoop, uh, you guys uh, were very nice to retweet it, so you can find it on that feed. Um, Absolutely. And if anyone wants to discuss it, you can reach out to me on Twitter, uh, and I can try to answer questions. <laughs> he will happily engage you in rigorous debate, not foolishness. <laughs> so rigorous debate, people. Get ready for that. All right, folks, thanks so much for joining us, and we will see you next time. Take care. <laughs>